You guys remember our thoughts from last week, or last time I preached to you, one of the two things I told you about, there are two types of tools that you use in life depending upon the wisdom you have. Remember we said there's the, there's the earthly wisdom which is sensual and devilish, right? And then there's the heavenly wisdom that is pure and peaceful and things like that. And we talked about the, tool, the two tools that James says that we use depending on which wisdom we have is either anger and lying against the truth or meekness and mercy. Humility and forgiveness. Meekness and mercy. And so those were two tools that we use depending on which type of wisdom dominates our thought process. <clears throat> so we talked about in James chapter 3. Let me read you this passage from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask, but you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world but makes himself an enemy of God... Do you suppose it is, no, it, it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Interesting passage there. He yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is the passage that a few weeks ago uh, Les, uh, Les McCurdy was really upset about, remember? Because he had to laugh, you know, weep and mourn and he basically said the whole passage said he couldn't be a comedian anymore. So that was the concern he had. And you can understand how this passage could cause us as a Christians a lot of trouble. I thought it was just to have joy and happiness. What is James talking about? <clears throat> well, I guess I want to share with you a couple of ingredients for a good fight. And before I get into that, can I explain to you a little bit about some of the things I've experienced in my now close to 30 years in ministry, right? I have seen Christians fight over some wild things. I remember one time we were in the middle of a building project and they were fighting over the color of carpet that was going to be in the sanctuary. I remember another time they were fighting on where the drums should go on the stage because there was this conflicting interest between the praise band and the people who like the traditional worship. Both are great. We did a little bit today, did we not? And so, but there was a fight. Where does the organ go? Some people wanted to put it all the way in the back. Some people wanted it all the way in the front and the middle. I've seen fights over what version the preacher uses when he's sharing the message. I've seen fights over programs in the church that were totally designed for one thing, for the Christians to enjoy. I've seen some wild fights among Christians. And James begins to address, remember who he's talking to. He's writing to Jewish believers. And he's saying, why do you guys fight and quarrel? I'll tell you why. The first thing he shares with them for this in, these ingredients 
for a good fight are conflicting passion. Now, understand, he's not talking about some accidental passion, you know, a time when maybe we fall into sin or error or we make a mistake. He's talking about a settled affection, a strong attraction, an intimate relationship with a passion. He's not referring to simply to some sinful hankering. I mean, that happens to all of us, right? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a deep-seated love for something. And we're going to discuss some, some of what those things could be in just a few minutes. But the first thing I want you to see is there are two types of conflicts that go on with passions. There's an internal conflict. He says, you have passions that war within you. Remember James chapter 1? A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Y'all remember that? Here is another example of a sandwich in James. It's a double-minded sandwich, an instability sandwich. He says there are, you know, you have these passions that are conflicting inside of you. And now what kind of passions is he talking about? Could be many things. He could be talking about spiritual passions and fleshly passions. Now there's another conflict that rises, and that's the external Where does all the external conflict come from? It's born within your heart where there's internal conflict. Maybe it's because the implanted word of God is absent. You see where all this happens, right? See, how can there be tremendous cycles of conflict if the implanted word of God exists that God has put there, who, by the way, yearns jealously for the spirit he's put in us? So there's two types of conflicting passion that we see here. There's the internal that's within you, instability, unstable, double-minded. And then there's the external, what that causes when it, com when it clashes and conflicts with other people's passions that are at war within themselves. So James kind of paints this picture. Why do you fight? The first reason is you're fighting with your own passions. And then the second reason is your passions fight with other people's passions. See, this is why the implanted Word of God, and we've been hammering this home for weeks, this is why the implanted Word of God is absolutely crucial because without it, you are nothing but double-minded, unstable, full of conflicting passions. Right? I don't want to watch this on TV, but I really do. I don't want to flip them off on Tammy Amy Trail, but I really do. I don't want to cuss them out, but I really do. And there's these conflicting passions all the time. And when one of them wins out, it conflicts with somebody else's internal passions. Let's look at the objects of these passions. In verse 2 and 3, I'm just going to read it to you. He says, do you, desi you desire and do not have, so you kill. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask, but you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it upon your passions. So there's two objects of these passions, right? There's desires of the flesh. We understand how that can be a passion, right? I want something that is sinful because it makes me feel good. It makes my body feel good. It makes my mind feel good. It eases and soothes my emotions in a way that I think is good for me. So there are things that I want that my flesh desires, and those are passions that war within me. 
There's another object of passion, though, that I think he's also referring to because he talks about the fact, he says, you desire to have, but you don't ask. And even when you do ask, you ask for the wrong reasons. I think he's talking about desires of the Spirit. I mean, did you know that you could have spiritual desires that are earthly and sensual and devilish? Remember we talked about that type of wisdom? See, this is the root of the conflict that rises within Christian churches all over America and frankly, all over the world because sometimes our spiritual desires really aren't very spiritual. See, it's not just about cars and clothes, but it can be about religious things. Let me ask you a question. Do you think God cares if we have a guitar on stage or an organ? Does he care? Does he think one is more godly than the other? Do you think God cares what color the carpet is? Or whether or not we have this beautiful array of lights? Do you think God cares... Do you think God says, I'd rather you not have the lights, or I'd rather you have the lights, I'd rather you have the guitar, I'd rather you have the organ? You think God cares about that? But we do, don't we? Don't we? I mean, you know, I've kind of always been on the side of the more contemporary style of worship in my ministry, right? And I have been angry at traditional worshipers, and they have been angry with me. Now, they might be angry with me because of different reasons, which is very possible. But still, <laughs> you see the point that I'm making? Or how about this one? Do you think God cares if there's a cross on the stage or not? I don't think he does. Now, there's nothing wrong with a cross on the stage. Nothing wrong with a guitar. There's nothing wrong with lights. There's nothing wrong with an organ. Do you think God really cares if there are certain specific programs in our church designed for our Christian kids? No, they're good. I'm not saying they're bad. But do you think that's really his main concern? I've seen Christians fight like cats and dogs over things like that. I remember being in a church that had a huge knockdown, drag-out church split over not women should be ushers. Kid you not. God doesn't care. See, what God yearns jealously over is the implanted word of God that he has put in your heart and life. But we as Christians, sometimes we can have these conflicting spiritual passions that really aren't spiritual. Why? Because James says we ask for them, we think we're, dear God, give, when really we're asking so that we can consume it, what he says in some other verses, in other versions, we consume it so we can consume it upon our lusts. Can we lust? for religious things? Are y'all with me? Can we do that? And can you see how our lust for religious things can cause conflict? Like, I could imagine in a church setting, if I had some sort of sinful desire, you're probably not going to know about it in a church meeting. So that's probably not where my conflict will come from with you. Well, you like that one? No, I like, you know, we're not going to fight over whose sinful desire is better, are we? But we are going to fight over whose spiritual desire is better. How many of y'all have ever experienced that? Have you? Or is it just me? Okay, maybe four of you. Is that it? What a fantastically mature church this is. This is fantastic. <clears throat> are there things in our church right now 
that if all of a sudden next week you didn't get them anymore, would it cause you to have passion that leads to conflict? Go through right now the things you like about the garden or the church of the palms. Go through some of the, some of the programs, some of the things we do. What if next week we yanked them away? Would there be anger? Would there be conflict? Would you be at war with one another? Is it possible that we want some of those things for the wrong reasons? First Timothy chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, it says, He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrel about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. Does that sound like a deacon's meeting? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth. Deprived of truth. No implanted word. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You hear that? Imagining making up in their mind somehow that godliness is a means of gain. See, what's the easiest way to deal with church conflict often? Just give in to the passion of the other person. Uh, you know, just give in. And that creates this, this incestuous cycle of conflict that continues to arise because if you give in to somebody's passion one time, they want it again and again and again, and it becomes an addiction. I want to talk about warring passions. What he's talking about in verse 4 and 5 is this. He says, you adulterous people. Man, that's harsh, isn't it? Do you not know that friendship with the world is opposed to God or is at enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? I want you to understand what James says. James makes a comparison to the implanted word, which in the Greek is clearly a passive verb. It's implanted. And then the spirit which he has made, there's another passive example of him taking the spirit and implanting it in us. So we have these warring passions. First, the adulterous one and killers. He says adulterous. And early on, he calls us killers. You have and you don't get, so you murder. And then there's the hypocritical side. Remember what he talked about last week? A fountain of both salt or bitter and fresh water. Remember the idea here? There we have a hypocrisy sandwich in James. Because he says you cannot love the world and love God at the same time. It's impossible. And there's another warring passion. He yearns jealously for the spirit he has made. Do you think a jealously yearning God that went through the trouble of implanting the word would give up that space so easily over the fight over a guitar or an organ or a cross, which, by the way, is a symbol of an execution means? 
or a color of carpet or a service time or a Sunday school class? You think a jealous and yearning God would allow something like that to encroach on the space that he provided in our heart for the implanted word of God? See, what I submit to you is this. If you have the implanted word of God, yes, there's an occasional slip-up. We understand that. But there's no time for a dominant passion in your life if the Spirit has been made to dwell there. Why? Because the jealously yearning God will not allow it for our benefit. You see how comforting it is, guys? You see how comforting it is that we have a jealously yearning God because he's taken this passion, which is the implanted word of God, he's planted it in our hearts, he's planted it in our souls, he's put it there for our benefit so that we could with meekness receive it and be transformed and changed. And then the scripture says that you can't have a a great passion for the world and also a great passion for the implanted word of God because you're not going to have any time. See, when you have the implanted word of God and that passion for God is in your life, every once in a while when another passion starts to rear its head, what happens? You get real uncomfortable. If you truly are a child of God, you get uncomfortable. Let's look at the ingredients for peace. First of all, God's abundant grace. Sort of like how he gives wisdom, is it not? Because he says he gives more grace. He says, therefore, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And he says he gives more grace. He says that in our passage today. Remember the passage we talked about in James chapter 1? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men how? Liberally. Remember I told you the picture that is painted by those words is that God is sitting on the edge of his seat. He's just dying to douse us with this wisdom, to inundate us, to flood us, to drown us in this wisdom that comes from above, from the Father of lights, whom there's no variation or shadow from turning. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Then he talks about the wisdom again in chapter 3. And now we're here, he says, God gives more grace. See, God... His grace and the wisdom he gives are simultaneously the same in James. He wants to flood you with grace the same way he wants to flood you with the wisdom if you just ask. And by the way, he says earlier in chapter 4, you ask but you do not receive because you ask for the wrong reasons to consume it upon your lust. Can you see how asking for wisdom is not a thing that you consume upon your lust? But it's a humility thing. It's a brokenness thing. It's a meekness thing that says, I don't have any wisdom. It's not like, I don't have a Mercedes. Dear God in heaven, please, I need a Lexus. They're not the same, are they? So God's abundant grace, and then the meek reception. The implanted word of God, humble and broken. Let me read it. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Meek, same word. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Humility. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Remember the beginning of the passage, he says, you don't have, so you kill. Murder is the ultimate arrogance. 
It's you as judge saying, you don't deserve to live anymore. So he gives this, this, he starts with that, and he ends this pericope, this teaching area, with the idea of the opposite of being so passionate you're willing to kill for it, is you being so passionate about God that you're broken and humble and saying, God, please, I need you. You see the difference? A person in that mindset could never dream about killing anyone. They could never dream about hurting anyone. Time and again, we see this idea of brokenness and humility. It's not something that comes from the natural man, but from the Father of lights. Humility is that wisdom that we're supposed to ask for in James 1. If you've been wondering all these weeks, I want wisdom. What is exactly I'm asking? You're asking for brokenness. God, break me. God, crush me. God, humble me. God, make me meek. God, change my heart. Change my soul. Change my life. I need you desperately. I need it. I need it. I need it. I'm broken. I need your implanted word. I need the spirit of God. And God, who's a jealous, yearning God, will come in, douse you with the brokenness, douse you with the implanted word, douse you with humility, douse you with the desire to draw near to him. And as you do that, he draws near to you. And the devil realizes, I ain't got a shot. He flees. And when you're in that mindset, it's hard to be a fighter, is it not? You see that? When you're fighting in a church, you're arrogant. You can either be steeped in arrogance and even self-righteousness or you can be steeped in humility and brokenness. What I submit to you is this. If the implanted word of God has been put in your life by a jealously yearning God who would protect that space at all costs, why? Because the scripture says he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, right? He also says, no man can pluck them out of our hand. We sang that today. All those things are true. We believe that when God grabs a soul, when God saves a believer, he is saved because God never does a crappy job of saving anyone. He does a great job because he douses you with wisdom. He floods you with humility. He floods you with brokenness and takes the implanted word of God and transforms your heart and life. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation at all in the spirit that he's made to dwell in you. Remember that. If there's any affection, if there's any sympathy, complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind. Single-mindedness, not double-mindedness. Having the same love, not conflicting passions. You see this? See how awesome this fits together? Being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition, including spiritually looking things. Or conceit, arrogance, judgment, which is what we're going to be talking about next week. But in humility, meekness, brokenness. Count others more significant than yourselves. Wow. If we could get a hold of that truth, would that not take care of a lot of fights? Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interest of others. 
You see, if your driving passion is the interest of others, how in the world can you have warring passions within yourself? But the only way you can have a driving passion of interest in others and of one mind and of one accord is if the implanted Word of God has saved your soul. Are you broken and humble enough to have no time for fatal attractions? Even if they seem spiritual? Are you? That's the question. Because if a jealously yearning God has carved out a space in your heart, he's not going to give it up for nothing. Ever. Not for some car, not for some instrument, not for some style of worship, not for some color carpet, not for some program. He's not giving it up for nothing. He will keep you full of wisdom, which is brokenness and humility. We're going to do one more song together. It's a great song that Megan has picked out that really kind of capsulizes this. We're going to do a baptism after that. And I want you to, I'll, I'll tie the two together in just a moment for you, and you'll see how awesome the connection is.